Hello and welcome to Global Take, the BPIA podcast. I'm co-host Tyler Smith. And I'm Alexandria Hadara. Welcome to Global Takes, America's number one podcast discussing global issues from the Black perspective. Today, co-host Alexandria Haidara has a meaningful conversation with U.S. Ambassador Sylvia Stanfield. Join us as we discuss U.S. foreign policy with China and if Biden's success in healing America's racial wounds will impact our human rights agenda in China. Ambassador Sylvia Stanfield was the U.S. Ambassador to Brunei Jerusalem from 1999 to 2002 and a career member of the U.S. Senior Foreign Service. Asia was the focus of much of her 30-plus years with the Foreign Service. Her first overseas assignment was with the then American Embassy in Taipei, Taiwan. As a political track Chinese language officer, she had postings with the U.S. Consulate General in Hong Kong, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and the American Institute in Taiwan and Taipei. She was also the Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy in Wellington, New Zealand, and she was Chargé d'Affaires. Ambassador Stanfield is the president of the Black Professionals in International Affairs, an organization founded in 1989 to increase African Americans' interest in it and involvement in international affairs. She is also a member of the Association of Black American Ambassadors Executive Committee. Well, welcome to the show, Ambassador Stanford. How are you doing today? I am fine, Alexandria. So thank you very much, and thank you all for the invitation to participate. Okay, okay. Well, we see, like I stated earlier, you've had such a distinguished career um, as ambassador and um, serving at the U.S. State Department and serving the U.S. Consulate and General in Hong Kong and the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Can you talk about your early days at the State Department and what it was like to be the first woman to compete, to complete a long-term overseas training? It was only the only American Black female oh. officer at the post, only Black and female. I mean, there were two um, secretaries in the mission. When I got to Beijing, I knew a number of the diplomats on the Chinese side who worked on American affairs. And I think I was the only African-American officer. I definitely was at the embassy. Uh, substance in the embassy was no problem. The, uh, the Chinese, you know, looked upon me as an American diplomat, you know, mm-hmm. and I was treated as such. But that was over 40 years ago. Uh, the restrictions we thought were fine, uh, pretty tight then. Uh, we couldn't leave the city uh, unless we got permission. And you put in your request to go and the Chinese would say, oh, it's not convenient. Pushing, pushing, bufang bian. Mm-hmm. Or uh, there were not a lot of free markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, to enter a hotel, you had to get past the PLA guard if you were Chinese. And they sort of tried to cordon us off from the rest of the population. So the China today is quite different, although there are still restrictions. Uh, the Chinese really wanted to, it was sort of the honeymoon period. The Chinese wanted to improve relations with us. And it was a chance for us to try to you know, get to know the Chinese, the various institutes, and so uh, to improve the, the relationships. Mm-hmm. But it was a different time than I think our diplomats have today. 
but okay. the restrictions are still there. Huh? <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for that. Wow, that is quite, um, those are really nice war stories, if you will, <laughs> of your days on the China desk and working in China. Can you talk a little bit about how um, just your presence there and you being an American diplomat, did you feel like in any way kind of shaped or kind of influenced your relationships? Were you able to um, like um, be able to be a little bit more successful in building those relationships with other Chinese diplomats as a woman officer or um, like particularly when it comes to, when I think of Chinese relations with the U.S., the first thing of course is human rights and, and trade. Do you like can you talk a little bit about um, like your personal impact or influence on I this early on discussions? Chinese, I worked on Chinese external affairs at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, you know, the, at that time, virtually the even the weather report was classified. Um, oh. You know, ch the Chinese didn't really tell you much. They weren't open up about their personal ties they, and friendship. Things were set. Um, and so, it was the diplomatic community that would get together and we would share information because mm -hmm. here we have briefings after a, a visit, you know, uh, the State Department does a briefing, the White House does a briefing, you can go and visit people in various institutes. China was not open there. And there was a traditional, certainly with our closest allies and friends, uh, we did exchange information and share information just to assist each other. Um, and Many of the diplomats, or quite a few of the diplomats, I remember, uh, in China, a number of them I'd worked with in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. so there, were, there was sort of a China group of people who were interested, and we all got along quite well. Um, the only time I remember, the Chinese were also welcoming of us because they wanted our presence there, although they could, you know, would restrict us. Um, I remember we had a diplomatic reception for a group that was coming to the United States. And I was uh, on duty like most of my colleagues. We were there at the ambassador's residence to lend a hand, make them feel welcome. Uh, and one man looked at me, came in and he looked at me and I spoke to him in Chinese and welcomed him. And he turned around and backed up and practically backed up into the next person. I mean, he was just, his mouth fell wide open, huh? Wow. <laughs> uh, he was not one, he was not a resident of the area and it's probably the first time he'd seen somebody like me, huh? A little bit of no, organization. <laughs> I'd heard about BPIA and I cannot remember from whom when I came back and they'd asked me to participate in some of their programs. In the 60s, she'd gotten together a group of people to discuss, maybe should, we should form an international organization uh, focused on international affairs. But it was not until the 80s when we found, you know, black uh, professionals in diplomacy in the foreign service, uh, the numbers had declined. Um, professionally, many Blacks were finding difficulty in, you know, employment, finding employment in the government and in the private sector. So Ms. Patterson, Barbara Patterson, persevered, and in 1989, BPIA was founded as an educational, charitable, nonprofit organization. It's a membership-based uh, organization uh, to increase the involvement of African Americans and expand the, really expand the pool of African-Americans skilled in international affairs. Uh, 
That's still its role. Uh, so we are focusing on enhancing professional development opportunities, facilitating mentorships, uh, sharing job opportunities. It's all the things that we do. Uh, we try to be responsive to the changing needs on the security side, trade and opportunities. But our vision is a more diverse and representative group of international professionals actively engaged in addressing the challenges of the 21st century. Hmm? Now, membership in BPIA is open to individuals of all races, nationalities, and to organizations that support BPIA objectives. Uh, our members, current and former diplomats, educators, members of government agencies, non-governmental agencies, international organizations, for example, the IMF, the World Bank, humanitarian relief groups. I mean, it's a whole range of people in various disciplines and fields. Um, they've got different backgrounds, experiences. It's open to anybody if you are in the workforce or if you're a student who at least 18 years of age or older. We welcome retired professionals and encourage them to lend their uh, considerable knowledge and expertise and skills to BPIA programs. Um, we also have quite a number of ties with and collaborative uh, relationships and partnerships with other organizations. But it's an all-volunteer organization, no paid staff. So we are grateful and appreciative of people like you, Alexandria. Oh, thank you. <laughs> time, talent, uh, expertise in making possible programs like this. So I would encourage other people like you to volunteer your time and join us and help us fulfill BPIA's mission. Um, it is a wonderful organization. What I like about it is that you just have like such a wide diverse of um, professionals who are passionate about international issues from various sectors, whether they're working in development or working in um, business or working at the State Department or Peace Corps in, or the United Nations. And it's really nice to um, just see that wide um, spectrum of um, Black professionals from different sectors. So going into that, like, how do you how do you what what do you see the role of the organization of um, the organization plays in attracting more black professionals in international affairs? Uh, well, we've got a lot of work to do. We've done some some good work. BPIA programs, which are used to sort of educate uh, and inform our membership and others in the community about issues around the world, global issues, uh, and preparedness. We have a robust mentoring program where they can, um, people who have experience in the fields can mentor. Uh, so that's one of the things that we can do and we can help, that's part of our role. Uh, we've had panels on issues such as the future of work, cyberspace and data uh, security and data privacy, uh, implications for our community and beyond. Uh, for members only, there was a holiday soiree uh, with the OAS administrative judge, Michael Pay, who's also a former State Department lawyer. We've had recent programs that focused on climate change, a program on climate change in diaspora at the time of COVID, on the World Trade Organization and the state of play in international trade affairs. Uh, we've offered a webinar 
on increasing your visibility, tips for creating an uh, unforgettable presence. Uh, again, I did mention this program on uh, focusing on um, Black ambassadors this coming up. We expect to hold again our annual International Career Expo and Fair uh, in August. We had our largest and really first virtual uh, International Career Fair that uh, garnered over 500 registrants. Yes. Uh, in addition to a keynote address from Ambassador Andrew Young, and we heard from the CEO of the Corporate Council of Africa, the S Assistant Secretary of State from of, uh, African Affairs, the people who attended could go to and attend a number of panels focused on careers uh, and what it's like, employment opportunities. They could also visit with exhibitors and employees. There was a networking opportunity. So I expect we'll have another one this year, uh, which we hope will be even better. Uh, again, in the fall, we'll host what will be our fifth uh, Africa Economic Outlook Forum when we focus on issues in Sub-Saharan Africa and usually an IMF uh, representative uh, provides a keynote overview. Uh, we've also recently had a program for high school students and their parents. We're active across a whole range of social media platforms. Um, and I think we have several thousand followers on these platforms. Uh, so check out our platforms. Let's check out what we've done in the past on BPIA chats and for an informative uh, discussions from a wealth of people, African-Americans experiences and careers in international affairs. But there are a number of opportunities that I would hope uh, African-Americans do decide to look into. Uh, mm -hmm. into. And I would also add that while I'm a State Department person, Foreign Service, that Almost every federal agency essentially has an international affairs section. Uh, oh, there is. At one point, I loved working on UNICEF, which was one of my assignments. Uh, we work closely with HHS. There's international affairs because they're involved in the health side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, commerce, commerce has the foreign commercial service, agriculture. Um, you know, they have a, a, a programs. That's what I've discovered um, after working the State Department. That's just there's just a whole world out there, and every sector, every industry has an international spin or international area to it. So, there is a highly anticipated call. In his first phone conversation with Chinese President Xi Jinping, U.S. President Joe Biden criticized what he sees as, quote, unfair economic practices. At the same time, he announced that heavy tariffs would remain in place and new restrictions for certain technology exports may be implemented. China stressed the need to uphold dialogue and called for tolerance of differing political views. Phone call with the U.S. President Joe Biden since the U.S. elections. According to the White House readout, Biden underscored his fundamental concerns about Beijing's coercive and unfair economic practices, its crackdown in Hong Kong, human rights abuses. Um, can you just talk about, um, do you think the, um, the success of the Biden administration to unify the country's the country and address systematic racism and racial inequality will impact our diplomatic efforts to influence China 
um, that addresses human rights issues? Do you feel like there's, based on your knowledge, is there a link between how well we're able to, particularly now um, after George Floyd um, in a Black Lives Matter protest. So um, with this pandemic, everything has been revealed. Um, there's nothing out in secret anymore in terms of our own racial and social unrest in our country. So, um, so the world is watching and they're watching and they're like it's shocked in a sense. But do you feel like how we um, address our racial issues will influence our success with, um, with our human rights agenda that we're trying to push for in China? Uh, yes, it will. Certain uh, events here home have tarnished our image around the world and credibility uh, and our relations with allies as well as well. Uh, and you're right, the Biden administration is here intent to tackle uh, the country's problems, to work to unify the country and address definitely systemic racism. Um, as the president has said in acknowledging systemic racism, he says, addressing it here at home will shore up our own foundation, uh, make us a more credible partner as the United States to rally the nations of the world to defend democracy globally. So China, in pursuing its ambitions both at home and abroad, uh, certainly seeks to diminish the U.S. credibility and our image, tarnish our image, and the values that we espouse as a nation. Um, you know, it's, uh, its leaders have highlighted racism in the United States and inequality, it's media as well, inequality in the United States. Um, and indefinitely in his comments and messages to Americans, you know, President Biden has acknowledged that the United States has a lot of work to do in this area. Uh, you're correct that in his first call with President Xi Jinping, um, President Biden, underscored his concerns about Beijing's uh, coercive and unfair practices, its crackdown in Hong Kong, uh, you know, human rights abuses in Xinjiang, uh, and its assertive actions in the region, you know, including in the Taiwan area. Um, but he made clear that we want to work with others as we tackle these issues. He says, we don't intend to go it alone. He says, you know, America is back. Diplomacy is back. Uh, while working together, we want to get our own house in order. Uh, and this can strengthen our message and our credibility abroad and help us in getting others to join together, to try to get to engage others uh, and to you know, reclaim sort of a leadership role in international affairs. And I think this is important because working together with allies and friends offer better possibilities and prospects of influencing China and its authoritarian efforts vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hong Kong and others. So yes, the success of the Biden's effort on our nation's social issues will have a, can have a positive impact and strengthen our efforts abroad to influence China to address human rights abuses and its crackdown in Hong Kong. It's not something easily done and it's definitely not something uh, we should expect change overnight. But I think this is a working together, we can have far greater influence. It's not an America will go it alone. And 
diplomacy is key. But that said, it's still important that we find areas where we can cooperate uh, with China, certain on the COVID vaccine, maybe climate change, when it's in our interest and that of our, not only Americans, but our allies and friends to do so. So find areas of common interest where we can work together. This past year has shown us how interconnected our world is and how our fates are bound up together. That's why my administration is committing to rebuilding our partnership around the world and re-engaging with international institutions like the African Union. I think you mentioned about America's back. I, I really like that because when I think about, um, you know, when you're, someone has left, like just on a personal, someone has left the family and, you know, you haven't seen them in a while and so much has changed during those family dynamics. Like people might move or other people might pass away. I know we're kind of going off topic there, but um, so how do we, like when I look at international relations, that's how it's kind of related to our um, listeners. How do we even convince our, our allies like um, Germany and um, the European Union that we're really back? Like, because so much has happened during the Trump years. He did so much damage to um, destroy those long-term um, relationships that we had built over almost, you know, for decades now. And and um, how do we like, how do we get back, if you will, um, with these or with these international um, treaties and organizations that we um, had funded and worked with long-term like the World Trade Organization and um, even with the UN, like how do we like exert our, we're really back and we're not going to go, we're not going to go back to where we were before with America's First and, and our isolationist policies, but we're really back. Um, how do we convince our, our allies that well, I, my own reading is I think many of our allies and friends are pleased with the, 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 the new tone um, and what they have heard and seen from the new uh, administration. Uh, the reliance on diplomacy, the reiteration of the fact that we wanna work with, uh, with other countries, that we don't plan to go it alone. I think this is welcome news to uh, many and our role in NATO, our recommitment to come to the assistance of allies per the treaty, uh, our desire to rejoin the uh, treaty on climate change, uh, what we may do with the World Health Organization. I think our actions in coupled with our words will go a long way in uh, improving uh, the status in you make no mistake about it. They're going to look at long term and see this. Oh, is America really making the changes, getting back? Uh, but I think the initial steps are good. The uh, National Security Advisor has met with a number of the African ambassadors to talk about how we want to help on international health security issues in, in Africa. Uh, and the president has said, President Biden has says he wants to um, be involved and partner with uh, some of the African countries on areas uh, where we might work together. Uh, there have been calls and they've reached out to other areas and regions uh, to let them know that we want to be there, that we're also going to be building and restoring our own functions and foundations at home, shoring them up.
so that we can be a credible partner and we will show them by our actions along with our words. So I think that's important. One of the things in, in that regard is uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, the president and the secretary of state, Tony Blinken, have both spoken uh, and noted the importance that the premium they place on increased diversity and inclusion at the State Department. They will support our diplomats. Uh, so I think all of those are positive signs and I think people pay quite a bit of attention. You'd be surprised, people pay attention to the United States and our friends overseas, If you, I'm sure you found this, know far more about the United States than most Americans know about other countries, which, which may be a sign. They pay attention to our words and our actions and they will be looking to see what we do. You know, if we build our embassies, uh, our missions, we are sending competent people overseas. That'll all work and go a long way, I think. It's not going to be an overnight turn. We got a long way to go. But we've made good steps. I think we're moving in the right direction. Speaking of that, like you mentioned about um, Chinese influence in Africa, why should can you tell our listeners why should why should the United States be concerned about its influence in Africa? Like I know at the State Department uh, when I was there and just being overseas, there is a kind of like a watch group of looking at what the Chinese are doing in Africa. Why are we so concerned with that region? Are we trying to progress our um, Africa, U.S. Africa policy, and even when I lived overseas, um, I was in Angola. The Chinese had um, built the um, Ministry of Finance building in Angola, and well, I saw the Chinese inscription on the on the Angolan flagpole. And um, so there's so much, like even when and then I was living in Rwanda, I had saw like um, definitely a lot of um, government buildings that were built by Chinese contractors. Why should we, why is the U.S. so um, concerned about its influence? Chinese influence. In Africa. Um, for years, ever since the beginning of the uh, People's Republic of China, it has been an area at once that was great competition for the recognition of the uh, countries in Africa, competition between Beijing and Taipei um, um, for diplomatic recognition. And they were active there in pro providing aid and assistance. So it's, it's not a new interest. Maybe it's uh, with a number of private personnel and companies in business there, they are interested. It's a market for their products. It's also a place for resources and for influence. Uh, but while China is a factor, it should not be the determining factor and is not, I think, factor in our policy vis-a-vis -vis Africa and US policy vis-a-vis -vis Africa. Africa is a continent and it's important in its own right. It's as a population that's young and growing. Um, it's resources, full of natural resources, they're plentiful. It's a market for goods and services. And it's a fast growing area of the world with great potential. But don't forget, we live in an interconnected world. And US investment in Africa's economic development can create markets 
for US products, our goods and services. Investing in helping to strengthen Africa's healthcare systems can reduce the spread of disease, reduce mass migrations, instability that leads to violence and ultimately threats to our own security and global security. You know, infectious diseases are a transnational threat. And our actions at home and abroad can contribute to an improved and more positive image, which again will improve our credibility for our own reasons, which we wanna do. And it can help to counter Africa's promotion, China's promotion of its own authoritarian style or model in opposition to ours. When we wanna encourage democratic practices and values, including respect for uh, the rule of law. And so they're looking to us to live up to our ideals. I think if we have a more diverse foreign service, greater diversity in our diplomatic corps, we'll have a positive impact. You know, certainly if you look at the nomination of Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, she's an Africa specialist and she's going to, she's the nominee for the next US ambassador to the United Nations and the perm rep to the Security Council. This is a cabinet level position. And I think this underscores in itself the importance that the Biden administration accords to Africa. So we have to compete economically and promote our goods and services and also demonstrate our values and the success that comes if they you know, move in a more democratic uh, mode of and adopt democratic practices. So we wanna compete with in Africa from a position of strength. Now, China's going to continue to push for influence, but so will the United States. And we need to and can compete, I believe, through our presence, the power of the examples and the sustained interest as a credible partner. Uh, the new administration has signaled that diplomacy is certainly going to be the center of our foreign policy. And as I said, the president has told the African Union that the United States wants to be partners with them in achieving common goals. It's in our interest to do so. And as we do so, I think we will be improving our position with the African nations, hopefully, and that we will be competing because with the Chinese, well, in Africa. You know, we have interests, they have interests, but we can compete and we can do it diplomatically on economic level. And because domestic policy and foreign policy are tied, right? Well, thank you, Ambassador Stanford. I really appreciate this um, healthy conversation on U.S. foreign policy in China, your career path with the State Department, your love of Chinese um, language and culture and how that shaped your career. Um, I really appreciate it. This has been a really um, great show so far, and um, we look forward to hearing more about what BPIA is doing, and we're excited about this new podcast. And and this influence in the international community. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
hello, hello, hello. That was hello. a great interview. <laughs> that was. I mean, I really learned a lot with the topic where we talked about um, America being back and what right. that actually means in terms of our foreign policy in our relationships with other countries, our, our other our allies, like in Germany and other countries in the European Union, are they going to be receptive? And when she said that, well, it depends on our actions and what we do when people are listening. And that's true. People are listening and they're watching too. They're watching if if our words match up to our actions. And um, that's definitely a good a point to think about. What were, what were your thoughts on that? No, I totally <laughs> agree with everything you just said, Alexandria, and like um, how important it is, like you said, with the Black Lives Matter movement, getting that global coverage, moving into BPIA, right? And how she talked about the formation of that and the importance of what she's doing. I think it applies directly. Right, right. Yeah, this was a great, this was a great discussion. Um, I never heard anything about just how, just the, how the success of United States ability to to deal with our racial inequalities, how that's going to impact even our future relationships to um, project ourselves as a number one democratic yeah. country in the um, in the free world. So um, so Biden has a lot of work to do. He has a Biden lot. Biden has a lot of work to do. That's definitely true. And thank you so much once again for that amazing interview. All right, for the podcast listeners out there, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, any social media site, you name it. We, IABPIA is where you can find us. Um, anything else you want to say, Alexandria? Please write a review. Mm. We need your reviews on this podcast. So um, thanks so much for listening. I been, I hope you were inspired. I hope you were educated. And I hope you are able to take over the world after listening to this discussion.